Do we have confirmation that amyloid is involved with Alzheimer's disease? Advocating greater use of generic medications. The proof of the utility of folic acid supplementation. And a public health effort to increase colon cancer screening in New York City. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on November 27th, 2015. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I think we're going to start with the British Medical Journal. That was a look at the continued rate of neural tube defect problems among children born to women who did not take folic acid during their pregnancies. Over there, of course, they don't supplement, but here we do. And I thought this was really interesting. So this issue of neural tube defects refers to the formation of the neural canal. If there are defects, it can present from one extreme called anencephaly, where there's just incomplete formation of the brain to a relatively minor defect called spina bifida where there's just incomplete closure of the spinal canal at the very bottom of the spine. And so those are some of the spectrum of neural tube disorders. And since the early 1990s, we've realized that preconception use of folic acid can decrease neural tube defects substantially. Now, how substantially? By as much as 70 or 75 percent. Well, as a result, in the United States, our cereals and grains and rice are fortified with folic acid. And we've seen a significant drop in neural tube defects in children born in the United States. But in Europe, rather than mandating fortification of cereals, rice, and grain with folic acid, they just recommend that women take it. And the question is, has that actually decreased the incidence of neural tube defects? So these researchers examined several thousand, over 11,000 incidences of neural tube defects covering over 12.5 million births in Europe, over 19 countries, from 1991 to 2011. And when they examined it, in fact, there was no decrease at all. That suggests that just voluntarily suggesting it isn't very helpful, that there are barriers to women actually doing that. Actually, if Europe wants to take this seriously, they'll do what the United States has done and fortify their rice cereal and grains with folic acid. And I would say that on the flip side, we sure haven't seen any harms relative to that supplementation here in the United States. That could be for two reasons. One is that there is no harm associated with it. The second is they found the, quote, sweet spot. That is, you give enough to prevent neural tube defects, but not enough where you get adverse side effects. And you're absolutely right. In the United States, it's not been associated with a change in the risk of cardiovascular disease or cancer or autoimmune disease or anything else. They've really found the right dose. Certainly, it's well worth avoiding that particular birth defect for children because even spina bifida, the least dramatic, if you will, of neural tube defects can require a lot of surgeries in order to overcome it. Absolutely, Elizabeth. This is not a small problem. There are over 5,000 children born with neural tube defects in Europe each year. In my opinion, Europe should take a play from our playbook and fortify their grains. Excellent. Since we're talking about proofs then, I thought it was really interesting in JAMA Psychiatry this week, this look at people who were cognitively normal, older folks, and whether or not they had amyloid accumulating in their brains. I think most people are aware that there's association between amyloid deposition 
and Alzheimer's dementia and other types of dementia as well. There are several questions around this. One is, is amyloid the cause of the dementia or is there something else that causes neurodegeneration and we have subsequent amyloid deposition that's a marker rather than the cause? This study didn't specifically address that, but what it did do is say, okay, if you do have amyloid but you have no cognitive defect, does that mean you're at risk subsequently of developing neurodegeneration and of developing cognitive decline? So they looked at almost 600 cognitively normal individuals and underwent extensive imaging with MRI and PET imaging. And then they followed them. There were some individuals that had amyloid at baseline and some that did not. What they discovered was that those that had amyloid at baseline and normal cognition were more likely to develop a more severe decline in cognition and imaging biomarkers that were worse, that is more amyloid deposition and more shrinkage of the brain as well. So these may have implications for how we design randomized trials looking at amyloid deposition. And may even point the way toward monitoring that's effective. I would agree. This study suggests that monitoring amyloid deposition does give you some insight into the progression of the disease and the rapidity of the decline. I still don't think, though, it gives you any insight into whether it causes it or not. I mean, it could be an innocent bystander, and so that's real controversial. We need to define that because if it is the cause, then preventing that can help prevent some of the neurodegeneration and the dementia. And certainly, I'm aware, and so are you, of studies that use antibodies and so forth in order to reduce the amount of amyloid, and we're going to find out some of those answers probably fairly shortly. Big problem, of course, big public health problem and one we need to intervene with. So since we're talking about public health problems then, let's turn to the journal Cancer. I like this study because they took a really multidimensional approach toward increasing colorectal cancer screening rates, especially in minorities, which is an ongoing big issue and looks like they got some success here. This is one of those big, hairy, audacious idea studies. Somebody said, you know what? Cancer screening doesn't take place as often as it should. Doing colonoscopy and looking for polyps is a good way of preventing colorectal cancer. And despite the recommendations, only about a third to maybe as many as 40% of people actually comply with the recommendations to have colonoscopy. And it's even worse in inner city, and especially in certain populations. So somebody in New York City said, gosh, we'd like to tackle this. And I'm thinking like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this is not going to be very easy in New York City. But as you mentioned, they took a multi-discipline, multi-targeted approach in New York City. And here's the results. The colonoscopy screening rate in 2003 was 42%. And in 2014, just a decade later, 70%. And just as importantly, they eliminated many of the racial and ethnic disparities. Great story. I give the people who thought about this big, hairy, audacious idea a two thumbs up. Excellent. What were some of the interventions that were specific to populations? They did have some mass publication, advertised on buses and in subways, public servant announcements on the radio. They identified certain areas where they needed to do more targeted education, for example, in the Chinese and Russian communities. And therefore, they had to develop culturally sensitive and also use the language as well. They targeted primary care physicians. They had patient navigators to help patients navigate through things as well. And then they used the federally qualified clinics to provide some of their free care. Kudos to these guys. I wonder about its expansion elsewhere. These principles can be applied to small cities and large cities as well. So this is a proof of concept and it works. Excellent. Since we're talking about things that can be applied everywhere, we will turn finally to Annals of Internal Medicine. Publication of the American College of Physicians recommendations that, hey, physician, not heal thyself, but prescribe generics. 
the American College of Physicians has a great article asking physicians to move from the more expensive trade drugs to the generic drugs. Now, how often is this a problem? In Medicare beneficiaries that have diabetes, they found that they were using brand name drugs when there are identical generics available in 23 to 45% of the prescriptions. They estimated that they could save Medicare $1.4 billion for patients with diabetes alone by using the generic medications. They said, well, what are the barriers? Well, physicians and patients wonder whether they're actually equivalent. This paper outlines that in most cases, they are equivalent. The one area where that's not true is in drugs often used to treat glaucoma. In that particular instance, the generics and trade drugs may not be the same. I'd like to know who is the source of the resistance to changing to generics. Is that the patient who says, no, 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 I'm on X and I've been on X for a long time and I just don't want to switch to something else, or is it really the physician? Well, it's interesting because this paper actually identified both. Many patients have the perception that if it's more expensive, it's got to be better. And that's not true. They asked physicians, should we prescribe generics? And the physicians said, yes, we should be doing that for our patients. But when they ask how many of them actually use generics, only about 25% do. So there is a little bit of a disconnect there as well. Well, okay, so this seems to be, at the moment at least, a voluntary kind of behavior, but I feel certain that big organizations like the VA, for example, or Kaiser Permanente or what have you, are going to say, hey guys, this is the deal. We are going to prescribe generics. Do you think that it's going to have to be a slam down in most of the country to get people to adopt this behavior? That certainly helped in the instance of the VA. They have a higher use of generic medications than most other large payers. So that's one thing that can help. We need to do more education, both for patients and for physicians. There are other strategies using electronic medical records as a reminder. And then oftentimes the payers now have tiered payment. If there's a medication and both the generic and the trade drug are available, the payer will cover more of the generic drug. And if you want the more expensive trade drug, then you pay a higher out-of-pocket. That's another way to contain it. So a lot of different ways to approach it. Well, let's hope most people adopt this voluntarily on both sides of that prescribing pad. It's a great way to control costs in a time where costs continue to rise. Excellent. On that note then, I'm going to talk about the markers for potential cognitive decline in JAMA Psychiatry this week on the blog. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Happy Thanksgiving, and y'all live well.